As Jesus walks out of the temple, one of his disciples comments on its magnificence. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. See, truly in its heyday, the temple was stunning. It had a reputation for being the most beautiful building in the world. The ancient rabbis used to say, he who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. Josephus, the first century historian who knew Jerusalem well, describes the temple in his seven-volume work entitled The Jewish War. He said the entire front exterior of the temple was covered in golden plates. And when the sun would rise in the sky, the reflection was nearly blinding. On a clear day, the brilliance of the temple could be seen from a considerable distance outside of Jerusalem. And the brilliance of the temple was not just through the golden plates, but the upper parts of the temple were pure white, most likely made of marble. The stones that made the temple walls were absolutely massive. I have a couple of photos from a trip that I took to Jerusalem about 11 years ago. That's a younger, more handsome version of myself. (laughs) This is the covered area of the Western Wall. And uh, if you're wondering, yes, I'm wearing a hang loose t-shirt at the most sacred site in the world. (laughs) And that's not a fanny pack, that's a camera pouch. That was before cameras and phones. But uh, if we go to the next picture, you can see, that's, that's the size of the wall, the sheer size of those stones. And the, the interesting thing is that this western wall was not even actually a part of the original temple, but only the supporting structure for the mount in which the temple was built. Thanks, Vicki. And so when Jesus predicts that not even one stone will be left upon another, That actually happened. In 66 AD, some 30 years after Jesus, the Jewish people revolted against Rome, and in 70 AD, Jerusalem fell, and the temple was completely destroyed. Josephus records that the temple was burned first and then leveled to the ground. Jesus predicts it in 33 AD, and it comes true in 70 AD, and most scholars believe that Mark's gospel, which is the earliest account of Jesus' life, was written sometime between 60 and 70 AD, before it all takes place. The content of Mark chapter 13, from which our passage comes, is without question the most disputed chapter in all of Mark's gospel. Without knowing the historical context of the Jewish war, one may be led to believe that Mark 13 is about the end of the world. Jesus does reference his second coming in verses 24 through 26, but we're going to look more at that next week. The first half of Mark 13 is geared toward preparing the disciples for imminent tribulation and persecution 
that they will experience in their lifetime. Jesus says in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. This is not the end. Eugene Peterson paraphrased it this way. This is routine history and no sign of the end. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and his disciples are curious. They want to know when and how this is going to take place. Tell us when will this be and what will be a sign that all these things are about to be accomplished. They probably want to get out of the city. They want to know what to look for. And so Jesus tells them, there will be false messiahs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines. Historical records indicate that there were several false prophets and false teachers during the Jewish revolt. Many who claimed divine inspiration And it is under their leadership that the Jews revolt and Jerusalem ultimately falls. There is also evidence of numerous earthquakes leading up to the destruction of the temple. Josephus wrote about one taking place in Jerusalem in 67 AD. Acts 16 mentions an earthquake in Philippi. Pompeii was said to be partially destroyed by an earthquake in 62 AD. And news of that would have most certainly reached Palestine. And there was at least one major famine during the reign of Claudius in 46 AD. The first half of Mark 13 is not about the end of the world. It's about the end of the temple. The end of the old religious order. Not one stone will be left on top of another. It will be broken down. Jesus predicts it. It is these words that will actually cost him his life, for what he speaks against the temple is his greatest charge against him. And before this happens, Jesus warns them there will be war, natural disasters, famine, false teachers, but do not be alarmed. Jesus says in verse 7. He wants them to be aware, but he does not want them to be afraid. And Jesus knows that many of his followers will suffer the same fate that he did. They will hand you over to councils. You will stand before governors and kings. You will be beaten because of me as a testimony. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures until the end shall be saved. These verses may be about a historical event that has already transpired. I've stood on the ground where the temple once was. But if you take a deeper look, the teaching that Jesus provides here is strikingly applicable for our own day. Jesus is prophesying, but prophecy, friends, isn't fortune-telling about some distant future that may or may not transpire. Prophecy is instruction for the present. We always 
live in times of war. We always live in times of natural disasters and false teachers. This is routine history. In the year 2017 alone, we saw armed conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, with over 60,000 people being killed. Over 14,000 people died in North America last year as a result of the Mexican drug war. Last year, we watched Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma destroy cities, earthquakes in Mexico, floodings in Bangladesh, a devastating mudslide in Colombia, drought, fires, flooding just within the United States alone. And with globalization and the increasing influence of the internet and telecommunications, we have seen false teaching on a level that has never seen or been known before. Anyone and everyone can have a platform to spread lies, to deceive, and to lead others astray. We've all seen it. People deliberately deceiving. Many claim to speak for God. But friends, we must come to know the true heart of God if we are to be avoid being led astray. And as for the church in America, we will become increasingly marginalized in the coming years. Our country is becoming more secularized, and the church's voice in the realms of politics, ethics, and culture is changing. And it is far from a unified voice. And it is in this reality which we live, that the living Jesus speaks. Do not be afraid. Acting out of fear or anger or hate is exactly how the church will lose its voice and influence. Jesus says in verse 10, the good news must be proclaimed to all nations. When the world seems most chaotic, friends, we have a clear task. The good news must be proclaimed. Do not worry about that which is out of your control, but the one who endures till the end shall be saved, and your life will be a testimony. Jesus' teaching is clear. We are not to be afraid. We are to preach the gospel and we are to endure until the end. In other words, we are to be courageously patient. Courage to be people of conviction, justice, and love. Courage to do what's right in caring for the least of these. Courage to point others to God's love by loving them ourselves courage to live and speak good news. And we are to be patient, patient in understanding that God is doing something even when it seems like he's not. Patient in understanding that God will ultimately win. And we are to be gospel people 
in a world that desperately needs good news. Good news that war and famine and disaster and racism will end. Good news that God is bringing his kingdom into this world, breaking down the old order in order for something beautiful to come. The temple was a magnificent sight to behold, absolutely. But it was also an epicenter for corruption, oppression, and legalism. It was a place of false pietism. In the Old Testament, God was often frustrated at his people who took more stock into their system of sacrifice instead of following God faithfully in their daily lives. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, God says in Hosea. The temple ceased to reflect the glory of God, and so God broke it down. He broke it down in order to make, make way for something far more superior. Jesus Christ. When it comes to our own lives, we are exceedingly uncomfortable with the idea of brokenness. But it is when we are broken down before the cross, that is when we are closest to God. As the psalmist says, God draws near to the broken. What needs to be broken down in your life? in order for God to make way for something new and beautiful. When I was a junior in high school, the most important thing in my life was wrestling. The way I saw it, wrestling was the first and only thing I was good at. So I devoted my time and my energy and my heart to training. And toward the middle of my junior season, things were going well. I was winning a lot of matches. I had just beaten one of the best wrestlers in Southern California. My hard work was paying off. But then my season was cut short. I got a very serious infection in my leg. I actually almost lost my leg. I was on bed rest for two weeks and then crutches for a month after that. If you want to see the scar, I can show you after the service. <laughs> but my season, and more than that, my sense of worth, was completely broken. But the same day I was diagnosed with that infection, a fellow wrestler on my team got dumped by his longtime girlfriend. She actually broke up with him to date the wrestling coach, which was a bit of a scandal, as you can imagine. But he was brokenhearted. And he spent the next two weeks at my house while I was on bed rest. We hung out every single day, and soon this friend started coming to church with me. And after a few months, 
I invited him to come with me on a mission trip to Mexico. And while we were down in Mexico on a mission trip, I got to lead that friend in a prayer to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Just months before that, we were both broken, feeling like our lives had fallen apart, our identity had fallen apart. But friends, it is when we are broken down that God really starts to work in our lives. Never underestimate the power of brokenness. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, whenever God wants to make someone great, he always first breaks them down to pieces. What needs to be broken in your life? Don't think that when the brokenness comes, you've done something wrong or that God's not at work because he is. What does God need to break down in your life? During this Lenten season, as Jesus leads us to the cross, may he break us down and mold us into his likeness. Let us pray. Oh God, we are grateful that in your life, death, and resurrection, you modeled what it means to be broken, humbled, and what it means to be transformed. And so, Lord, we invite you to work in our lives in ways that we have never seen or experienced before. We pray that you would change us, make us, and mold us as you will. Amen.